Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the wellness manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. I am here with Amanda Cotter, a child psychologist and EFR's child and adolescent clinician. Welcome to Emotion Well, Amanda. Thank you for having me, Joanna. I'm really excited. Yeah, so I'm excited to speak with you and learn a little bit more about your background and areas of expertise and have you introduce our listeners to some of the new services that EFR is providing out of our West Des Moines office. Actually, at both offices, right? Are you downtown and in West Des Moines? Just West Des Moines right now. Just West Des Moines. Okay. So out of our West Des Moines office. So go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and kind of share whatever you'd like them to know about you. Sure. Uh, My name is Amanda Cotter. Like you said, I have kind of a really unique role at EFR and I was really lucky to secure this position. Um, So I am a licensed school psychologist. I went to the University of Northern Iowa. I completed my undergrad education in psychology with a minor in school psychology. That's kind of how I figured out what that program was. Um, and then got really lucky that you and I actually had the only program in the state of Iowa um, for graduate school for school psychology. So I got my master's and um, a specialist degree within that program and essentially just learned a lot about different types of behavior, mental health disorders that are common in schools like ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, and learned a lot about creating treatment plans to help kids in a school setting and then helping parents at home as well. Um, So after completing that program, I worked as a school psychologist for a couple of years um, at Heartland AEA. I served the Newton School District and then later the West Wayne School District as well. And just kind of being in the schools, I realized that while I was doing a lot of stuff with behavior and helping kids with autism or other developmental disorders, really the the one thing that stood out in schools is mental health, that it was a concern for all students, not just those who were in a special education program. Um, So I just wanted to learn more about how I could help kids with mental health needs. um, And that kind of led to going back to grad school. Um, So I went back to school. While working full-time, I went to Grandview and worked on um, my clinical mental health counseling master's and finished that actually recently, um, took my board exam and everything, and I'm officially dual licensed as still a school psychologist and a clinical mental health counselor as well. And in the process of getting my, my second master's at Grandview, I was introduced to EFR and actually interned for EFR. Um, So really learned that I I love counseling and I like working with kids. I like the community-based setting where I have an office to work out of. Um, I just feel like it's a different approach. I'm able to help families and kids in a different way than I did in the schools. And kind of led me to my current job of just really getting to put both of my licensures to use, both of my passion areas um, and not only provide counseling, but do formal diagnostic testing for families as well. Well, great. We're so fortunate to have you at EFR, and it's really exciting that we've been able to expand our services. So um, I'm trying to decide what we want to talk about first. Do we want to talk about, let's talk a little bit about the prevalence of children, you know, youth, adolescents in our school systems uh, who are experiencing some kind of um, 
would it be called a mental health issue, a behavior issue? What What is kind of the proper term around, what's the umbrella term? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like any any site you'd look at might word it differently, but um, just kind of the overall would be like a, a mental illness or behavior disorder. Okay. And we're looking at about 20% of kids overall. And to, to break that down for you even a little bit more, about 9.8, so almost 10% of children in the U.S. right now have ADHD, about 9.4% with anxiety, 8.9, pushing 9% with a behavior problem, and this might be something called oppositional defiant disorder. This could also be related to ADHD, um, the hyperactive type, and then about 4.4% with depression, and then the most recent autism statistic is 1 in 44 children. Okay. So these rates are definitely increasing. Um, I did look up those statistics this morning, and that was based on a 2021 report. So I do think COVID has played a huge role in some of the increasing mental illness, but these statistics are are way higher than we've seen in the past couple of years. So what is the difference between ADD and ADHD? Good question. Um, so ADD is no longer in the DSM, which is our essentially your guide if you are a therapist yeah. or mental health professional. Um, so it's kind of faded out and ADHD is more of a spectrum now. So there's different types. There is ADHD inattentive type, and this might be a kiddo who has trouble focusing or concentrating. Um, they might need extra reminders to remember things or follow routines, or they might just get really distracted easily, whether it's at home or at school. Then ADHD hyperactive type, this is a little bit easier to kind of quote unquote see. So this might be a kid who has difficulty sitting still, um, jumping from like one activity to another. Maybe they're just always talking, interrupting people, just kind of a lack of impulse control. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then there's ADHD combined type. So that would be meeting the criteria for both of them. So over time with prevalence growing for ADHD, the DSM has been revised to incorporate those different types. And do you think just, I'm asking your opinion, you know, are there more diagnoses of ADHD? Is it, are more kids showing this or more parents getting their kids tested and therefore the statistics are increasing? I've always been curious about that and autism really. Absolutely. Is there more awareness and more testing? And so now we just know more about it. I would say both. Um, I do think society in general is in a mental health crisis, whether it is use of technology, post-pandemic stress, just events that are going on in our world. I think mental illness has exploded. I think anxiety is just way more common than we've ever seen. And a lot of times ADHD goes hand in hand with anxiety and or depression. Um, but on the other hand, I do think our awareness has increased a lot. I think parents are more aware of the signs and symptoms to look for. I think pediatricians are talking more about autism at um, yearly check-ins and bringing that up with parents, maybe before parents come to them with concerns. Um, same with ADHD. I think even teachers now and educators are more aware of what it might look like and more aware of symptoms and just kind of knowing when to refer out or, or get help for that family. So another, uh, you said oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. Can you describe yes. that? Yep. So that is a um, behavior disorder. So it 
sometimes looks like ADHD hyperactive type, um, but really the difference is this is a kiddo who is actively defiant. So trying to go against authority and we would see it in more than one setting. So this might be a kid that is constantly arguing with parents at home, trying to break rules, trying to push boundaries and engaging in similar behaviors at school as well. So arguing with the teacher, maybe they aren't able to create friends or, or develop relationships easily, um, pushing rules and again, boundaries in the school setting as well. And what about IED, is that <laughs> intermittent explosive disorder? Yes, yep, that one is a little bit more rare. Um, this is a disorder, it, it could be common in adults too, or I guess rare overall, but we could see it in adults as well. Um, this is when, someone just kind of has a, a lack of impulse control and behaviors explode for lack of better term. Um, for a kid, this might look like a really intense tam temper tantrum with aggression, property destruction. Um, for an adult, it could just look like they snapped, um, just kind of lost it on someone outside of what their normal range of emotions is like. Um, but within kids who have this disorder, they tend to be pretty irritable overall but then they still have those explosive type tendencies. And that is way less common than ADHD and ODD. Okay, well, thank you. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about the testing that EFR is offering and what are you able to test for uh, and kind of how that works. Yeah, so um, I stick to all of the assessments I was trained on, which again are within that school age range. So um, I do, assess younger than age five, but the most common clients I see are between age five to 21. Um, and I really stick to the kind of the disorders that we've already talked about. So ADHD is one area that I provide services for. Um, some of the assessments I might use for this is something called the Connors. Um, it's a reading scale really focused on assessing for ADHD. It is diagnostic and standardized. Um, the Vanderbilt is another tool, something called the BASC, the Behavioral Assessment for Children. And then sometimes I do use a Cognitive Assessment, which is the Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children. Um, and the point of using the intelligence test is to rule out a potential learning disability or intellectual disability, just to make sure we're really narrowing in on the exact concern we're looking at. And are you able to diagnose intellectual and learning disabilities? Yes, I do assess for those as well. And so um, and for, what would an example of one of those be? Yeah, so an example would be, um, I mean, dyslexia is probably the most common. Oh, um, and one way I assess for this is I do a cognitive assessment, which gives me a better um, insight knowledge of a child's overall cognitive abilities. So there is one scale called verbal comprehension which just kind of tells me how well they can communicate, what their vocabulary knowledge is like. Um, and then I am also given a full scale IQ number, which just kind of best represents their cognitive functioning. So after I do that, I do something called an achievement test, um, which is the Weschler Individual Achievement Test, fourth edition, called the Wyatt for short. Um, this is pretty intensive. I mean, this, this assessment takes hours. It's not the most fun for children because it's, it's, pretty academic heavy. Um, we really focus on reading, communication, oral language, writing tasks, math tasks. Um, there's about five subtests within those categories. And after completing that assessment, I really look at what we call discrepancy. 
So does a child's ability within the academic assessment match their cognitive performance? If there is a big significant difference between the two, that would suggest a learning disability. So for example, um, let's say a child has an overall IQ score of 120. This is pretty high average. So I expect that their academic performance is average to high average range. And maybe they performed on math in the low or very low average range. So that would be a pretty big indicator that they have a learning disability in math. Okay. And you can test for reading, learning disabilities, math, learning disabilities. Yes. And writing. Is it common for kids to display one? Is it common for them to have both? What do you see most often? Mm -hmm. um, good question. I would say I normally see one most often. Um, if a child is presenting with multiple learning disabilities, that would be when I would maybe consider an intellectual disability, that more than one area is below where they should be performing. Okay. So what are barriers or hurdles people encounter when they want to access services for their mm -hmm. kids? So maybe a pediatrician has said something or a teacher mm -hmm. has said something at conferences. What mm -hmm. would you say are some of the top barriers for parents and guardians as they're trying to access services and, you know, first diagnoses and then services? Mm -hmm. The number one barrier is the wait list. Um, so Iowa City is the most common and has the best expertise, in my opinion, for autism testing, but they're often book, almost, booked almost a year out. Um, a lot of other psychological services in the area are booked about a year out as well. It's very hard to find a provider who does not have at least a three to six month wait list right now. And that's and because that's, there's so few providers that offer this. And then is it a supply and demand? It's there's families that need it, but a limited number of providers that can offer it. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And the number keeps growing for referrals again, because we have this mental health crisis, because people want and need formalized diagnostic testing. And then we just have a lack of mental health supports and providers in the state of Iowa. So that's kind of what leads to this, this jam essentially of people's wait lists being really, really long. So that is unfortunately the number one reason that families are not able to access the services they need. Sometimes they just don't want to wait. They're looking for something more immediate. And the thought of a six month to year long wait list is just so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And do you think stigma plays a role in reaching out and getting those diagnoses? Mm -hmm. I do. I do think that we're, while society's in this mental health crisis, I mean, there's pros and cons. Um, one benefit, in my personal opinion, is that people have a greater awareness of mental health. People are talking about it more. I'm always blown away by some of my clients who are five and six years old, and they're talking about ADHD and anxiety, and they know the terms, they know the symptoms, they have a word to describe some of the feelings they have that maybe they thought all along weren't quite normal and now they have a word for it. Uh -huh. So it's been really amazing um, to just kind of see that that effect that now we're talking about it more. Um, so in a sense that reduces stigma because more people are aware, more people are open to the idea of mental illness and services and therapy and psychological testing. At the same time, we're not fully there yet. So unfortunately there is still some stigma that is assigned to 
psych testing and specifically autism. There's quite a bit of stigma around autism. Um, there's a lot of stereotypical views that autism looks like one thing um, or that all kids with autism act or present a certain way. So there's there's still unfortunately some negative biases or stigma around different disorders. And why is getting a diagnosis important? What, what opportunities does that open up for families? I think, um, in my personal opinion, it's kind of the, the peace of mind that for so long, maybe a parent has thought there's something quote unquote wrong with their child or, a teacher has told them over and over again that they think their kid has ADHD and their kid isn't acting like every other kid in the classroom. And that takes a toll on families to think that there is something wrong with their child or that they've done something wrong as parents for their kid to present or act this way. So I think testing, diagnostic testing can provide a peace of mind that it's, you know, it's not an excuse by any means, but it's, it's kind of an answer that I, I always felt like there was some missing link or I wondered why everybody assumed my child was wrong. And to find out like, oh, my kid is on the spectrum. It just kind of changes maybe a parent's view. It adds patience or understanding or it can help the parent verbalize better to other adults that, hey, you just need to try your approach a little bit different with my child. They have something called autism and here's how they're gonna respond best to you. And when I, when I say answer, I mean it, it guides treatment planning. I don't think a diagnosis is a solution. It's not kind of the end of the road, but it's a really good way to have that formal testing, to have an answer and say, here's what we're looking at. This might open a door to other services, or this might guide your child's clinician or therapist into creating a treatment plan that fits this diagnosis and fits the need of your child. And can you talk a little bit about IEPs and how, I'm curious, do you have to have a diagnosis to have an IEP in a school? Great question. That's what I did when I worked um, in the school. So I, I feel that I have pretty good knowledge on IEPs. Um, so you, you don't need a diagnosis to have an IEP. It's really kind of a separate evaluation. Um, so I could diagnose a child with ADHD and recommend a 504 plan or IEP at school, and they might not qualify. It's an individual evaluation that that child has with the school because just because they have ADHD or autism or an intellectual disability does not mean they would require special education services. They might need some accommodations, which would be a 504 plan, just different things to help them be more successful, whether it's more time on tests or maybe they have preferred seating, like they sit in the front of the classroom so they're not as distracted. Um, maybe they have handwritten notes from a teacher in every class because they have a hard time paying attention and taking their own notes. Um, so just different accommodations to make them more successful. But having a diagnosis alone does not guarantee an IEP or 504 plan because there would still need to be that educational need to have something in place. Okay. And for our listeners, IEP stands for? That is an individualized education plan. That is, uh, again, an independent evaluation that someone from the AEA um, would complete, and they would determine if a, a child meets the need for an IEP, which would be based on discrepancy. So how unique are they from other peers? Are they performing below other peers? And also looking at progress. So are they able to make progress? Have they made progress from kindergarten and now they're in third grade? Or have they just kind of 
always been at the same level throughout their education. And, and then also looking at the amount of services that are needed to help that kid be successful. So if we're doing a ton of interventions, like this kid has had specific title reading interventions for three years and they've made no growth in reading, that's when we'd maybe consider, okay, they probably need an IEP. They need the next level of services to help them bridge the gap between them and their peers. Okay. And a lot of our listeners are from Iowa, but some come from other states. So mm-hmm. uh, it, across the nation, is it called an IEP and a 504? Or is that unique? Is yep. the 504 unique to Iowa or is that the nationwide code mm-hmm. for this? Yep, that is nationwide. Um, however, each state's model will look very different. So okay. For example, I do cognitive testing at EFR within my position, um, but in the school setting in Iowa, they do not use cognitive testing. So other states like, let's say Wisconsin, um, you can use cognitive assessments. So they kind of what I do, they would give that cognitive assessment, produce that full scale IQ number, and then they would do the achievement test, like I kind of talked about earlier, produce those numbers, and they would be able to say, your child has a learning disability and then they'd qualify for an IEP. Okay. Iowa does not do things that way. Every state's a little bit different, um, but Iowa does not use cognitive assessments, essentially IQ tests to determine special education. Okay. You mentioned that you can assess up to age 21. So talk to us a little bit about people that come, you know, when I think of a 21 year old, I think that person is probably not in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, So do you share a little bit about, you know, the different, phases of education, you know, are a lot of people getting tested in elementary school, middle school, high school? Is it possible that someone doesn't know that they have dyslexia until they're in college? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would say most of my clients are definitely in the elementary school range because that's when a lot of symptoms present. However, I have worked some, with some clients who are seniors and transitioning to college. I have also worked with a couple of college students who maybe all of their life have had to work extra hard at something. And it just became normalized that they were able to do that. They knew that they were working hard, but it was working out for them. They were probably a straight A student, despite the level of work it took to get there. And then, you know, enter senior year of high school when academics are harder or college. And now they require really strong executive functioning skills to manage their time, to get assignments in, um, just to sit in a college lecture hall and pay attention. And it's a whole different ballgame. So a lot of these kids who maybe had ADHD their whole life, but were able to get through it, never really realized that they had this disability until later in life when they were challenged in a new way and realized things became really hard. So it is possible um, to make a diagnosis. You would have needed to show symptoms your whole life, but some for some people, it's just kind of messed or it becomes normalized that they were able to, to push through and they had a really strong work ethic. Sure. Uh, what, so after you do the, the testing or the assessments, then do these individuals often meet with you one-on-one in a counseling Mm -hmm. setting, or do you, I'm curious about kind of the journey you have with these individuals. Is it kind of Mm -hmm. this appointment or series of appointments, and then you don't have interaction with them again? Or is it possible that you're going to work with them through counseling? Yeah. Um, So one approach that is a little bit unique that I follow is I don't do all of my testing in one day. I don't feel that that provides accurate results, especially with young kids. I think they're really burnt out with the cognitive assessments. 
So I do schedule different sessions um, for testing. So I often meet with a kid maybe two to three times. I do think that gives me a, a better picture of the child overall because I could see them one day and it was a bad day for them. And I could assume or have a biased view that they might have a behavior disorder versus if I see them multiple times, I can see them on a good day or a bad day or a Friday versus a Monday because kids act, you know, they act differently. Yeah. They their days range. Um, so I think I think that's important to just not have one four to five or even eight hour picture of a child, but to see them multiple times. Um, so that's something that I do. Um, then another thing that I, I really enjoy doing is um, for our last session, after I have scored all of the assessments and have my report written, I do invite families in to meet with me in person and we go over everything in person. Okay. And I think that's important because it they're able to answer questions. I'm not sending something over email and families are wondering, you know, what does this mean? I feel like it's a really good time that they can ask questions and we can really talk about why did I choose this assessment? What information does this assessment give? And if there is a diagnosis, what does this mean? And what recommendations do I have moving forward? Um, so is so every... the child with the parents or guardians when you do this? I kind of offer the choice to them. Um, some parents like to come by themselves, which, which I think makes sense if it's a younger child or maybe the parents haven't really explained yet to the kid the, the whole purpose of testing. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes parents choose to come to that session by themselves and then they choose to to talk to their child about it um, privately. And sometimes I do have kids come too, especially if they are like an adolescent or older adult, typically they do come with their parents and we talk about the results and, and what it means. Um, there are some times that I have referred children out to counseling and I am able to do those services being dual licensed, which is a really awesome connection that I've kind of built that rapport with the client. And then it's not just, here's your diagnosis, go on your merry way. It's, you know, here's, here's a service I offer. You can continue to work with me and I can provide treatment for this diagnosis. Um, <clears throat> other times I have a client come to me who already has a therapist. So I'll have them sign a release and I can provide recommendations to that therapist. Um, sometimes like with my older kids um, or college age kids, sometimes they they like having this report to have better answers about themselves, but then they can take my report to the disability center on campus and get some accommodations that they might need for their college courses. So each each client is very different, um, but I love being dual licensed that I just, I don't have to end my journey with that client after testing and then I can continue to work with them. Right. So I'm just curious when, so you're delivering uh, the results and let's say you tell a family that their son or daughter has ADHD. Do you typically leave it up to the parents or guardians to communicate that diagnosis to the child? Do you give them recommendations for how you would explain mm -hmm. ADHD? What? So let's just That's pretend, let's pretend like you're telling me that, you know, my child screened and, mm -hmm. uh, it appears as though he has ADHD. So what what would you say to me as the parent? Yeah, so in my report, I, I will have a, a list of recommendations and I might say, you know, Joanna, your kid does meet the criteria for ADHD. Here's how we know. We reviewed all of the assessment information and I'd recommend that you'd have a conversation with your kid about what this means. Okay. So I might say, you know, you're, you're welcome to bring your child in and we can talk together or I can maybe have a session with, with you alone, Joanna, and we could go over more of the diagnosis and discussing ways to talk about it with your child. 
maybe your kid is already aware that certain things are difficult for them. And this might be really good information for them to have. Um, kind of like I said earlier, having that label to understand the things that they may have already realized, mm -hmm. set them apart or make them different. So we can definitely brainstorm different ways to do that. And some parents, I mean, the really cool thing about a diagnosis is it's no one's information, but the client and their right. parents. I don't share that information. It does not go to a pediatrician unless the family brings it to the pediatrician. It doesn't go to the school unless the family chooses to do that. So it's really their own journey. I would never push for someone to, to do something with that um, unless it was to help them get additional services. But it's really up to that family of what they want to do with this new information. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that one of the biggest barriers is just the wait list or, you know, the limited uh, providers for these services. Can you tell us a little bit about at EFR what you're seeing now for your wait time if someone were to call today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as of right now, I do not have a wait list. I am scheduling clients. Um, right now it's February 10th. I am scheduling clients in March, um, but that would they're on my calendar ready to go. So being a new provider, that is an advantage that I have not yet built that wait list. Um, so that that has helped, especially families who have maybe been waiting six months to a year, I've been able to get them in with immediate openings. Right. And then it, it's a fee for service with, is there a sliding scale? Yes, we do have a sliding scale fee. Um, it is private pay for my assessments. Um, but one, one benefit that we offer at EFR is if the client presents with a psychosocial assessment within 12 months. And by psychosocial assessment, I mean, if the client has had therapy in the last 12 months, they probably have that mental health assessment from their therapist or a lot of pediatricians complete mental health screeners or have good information about that child um, because there is some existing information that helps me out quite a bit. So we offer a, a lower fee if a client comes to us with that already completed. So um, if you'd like to give me to give a specific example, um, for, for example, for ADHD testing, we do charge $625, but if a client has a current psychosocial assessment within the last year, it's $325. And that is before considering we have payment plan options, meaning the families could split up those payments. And again, we have sliding scale fees for families with um, incomes where they just feel like they cannot make these prices work. We, do, we never want to turn anyone away who feels like they can't pay for the services. Yeah, I would say that cost is probably a barrier for a lot of families in addition to Absolutely. a lack of services. So this mm -hmm. is such great information. I'm going to include in the show notes uh, the webpage from EFR.org where people can go to learn more information about this. And I will link to your bio on our website as well. Uh, but it was so great to have you in this conversation today, Amanda. And we're so fortunate at EFR to have these services and to have you as part of our team. So uh, anyone listening who's interested in connecting with these services, please look to the show notes for more information. Thanks for listening to EmotionWell. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunlevy and produced by Emily Wancombe.